everyone. It's Cara, your host in Salonaire. You are in Le Vital Core Salon. I want to welcome back you old friends and new friends if you're not sure you're in the right place. This is a place for you to make yourself sonically cozy. Maybe take your shoes off, have a warm beverage, maybe even an adult beverage. Go for it. But this is where I introduce you to a modern woman leaving her unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout stop her. In the hopes that you can come away from this with some inspiration and maybe even an actionable idea to shoot down some of the bullshit or burnout in your own life. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to thank you all for some patience in advance. I'm hoping that my voice holds up through this whole podcast, but it is incredibly hoarse, and I think that's for two reasons. One, it finally stopped snowing here in the Catskills, and everything seems to be blooming at once, which seems to just be leaving a layer of grit in my throat right now. Sorry if that's TMI, but I I feel like it sounds like I've had 35 cigarettes, which is so not the case. Also, I just got back from a week in Alexandria, Virginia, where I got to hang in real life with Patty Wilson, the president of Professional Women Controllers, who you may recall meeting back in episode 31. Not only did I get to meet and hang out with Patty, which was such an awesome experience, but I also got to meet a couple hundred women air traffic controllers as the organization celebrated their 40th anniversary. Happy 40th birthday, professional women controllers. That is an outstanding achievement. How does this relate to my horse throat, you might be asking yourself. Well, my vocal cords got a major workout talking about integrating realistic self-care even when people depend on you with some seriously type A sisters last week from all over the world. It was a lot of talking. I think I did 12 private sessions and then also a breakout session at the conference. Also want to pause here. Yes, folks, I can totally be coaxed out from behind this microphone. So if you are looking for speaker at a woman-focused event and self-care is important, then head on over to levitalcoresalon.com and click contact. That'll send an email right to my inbox. And I could probably ramble on for days with all of the experiences of last week. It was something so fulfilling to my Mr. Rogers watching how does this get made or how does this work vignette. Also, my voice is shattered because after the conference was over, the organizing committee set up the opportunity for me to take a tour of the air traffic control tower at Reagan National Airport. And I thought that would be maybe like an hour tour, but I got four hours to check out the air traffic controller simulation room, the tower itself, just kind of observe how things work, and ask 10,000 questions. So if you think that I only ask questions on this podcast, you're wrong. I ask even more most days in real life. Okay, okay, let me stop geeking out about last week because I have a really awesome guest for you to meet today. 
I want you to meet Sarah Cantor A. Sarah co-founded Greater Good Studio with her husband, George, who I had the privilege of meeting in the speaker green room at South by Southwest earlier this year. Now, Sarah was someone who shares that she started a mechanical engineering program at Northwestern University with the hopes of designing toys someday. And life has a funny way of of switching things up. How she got from there to eventually studying design planning from the Institute of Design at IIT in Chicago to then co-founding Greater Good Studio. Sarah's going to talk about how she transitioned from the corporate space to Greater Good Studio, where she applies her background in ethnographic research and design strategy to overlooked problems and underserved people. At Greater Good, she's designing effective and inclusive engagements, guiding the research practice and developing partnerships with clients, peers, and mentors. We're going to talk about what that means, what designing for social impact means, and and how she does that work. And when she's not doing that work, she often is speaking on designing for social impact and has facilitated social innovation workshops around the world to a wide range of learners. And that includes nonprofit executives to high school students. There is so much cool stuff to learn from Sarah. She also shares what it's like to be a modern working mom and how she's able to compartmentalize things and kind of be in work mode when she's at work and in home mode when she's at home. And just because she's a problem solver by nature like me, she she has some advice and some things and some resources that have helped her along the way. And she's very generous with her time and with her experience and her wisdom in this episode. So enough listening to me be a total fangirl and I think forming a little bit of an intellectual crush on Sarah to actually hearing from Sarah herself. So voila, the interview with Sarah. Hey, Sarah, welcome to La Vital Core Salon. I'm so happy to have you here. Hey, Kara. Thank you for taking this time. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> I know we're both so excited to talk, right? <laughs> <laughs> And I I wanted to kick off with a question around what you do, because you're the co-founder, the executive director, and a pissed off optimist at Greater Good Studio in Chicago. Because what you do seems so unique, can you just get me and my listeners all on the same page of what you do at Greater Good Studio? So I run a design firm called Greater Good Studio, and we use a process called human-centered design. Um, We did not invent human-centered design. It's a process that was perfected at Stanford um, and through large design firms like IDEO, mostly working in the corporate space, um, to design new products, new services, um, and ultimately, you know, better things, better experiences for customers. I did that work for many years. Um, basically designing new products um, for corporate clients. So I was an innovation consultant. Um, We would be hired by uh, major U.S. corporations like S.C. Johnson and Nike 
to say, you know, what's the next line of air fresheners or what's the next, um, you know, athletic product. Um, and while that work was certainly very interesting and very exciting, um, what we would do in that case is we would uh, go into the homes of the users of those products. So, for example, I, I did spend a year on Glade. Um, it's not my most, it's not my proudest uh, moment <laughs> of my career working on air fresheners, but. Um, we would, you know, go to people's homes who were big Glade users and customers, and we would try to understand, you know, why this was important and how they use the products and what it was like to shop for the products and dispose of them and just understanding people's use of a thing in order to then make design recommendations for how that thing should be better, um, more human-centered, if you will, more user-centered. Um, so I did that work for many years. And ultimately got to a place where I felt like I was using this really powerful process, human-centered design, um, to do really stupid things, um, <laughs> <laughs> which, which all essentially came down to making our clients more money. Um, and around the same time, I was having my daughter, my, my first child, so this is about seven years ago, and know, stepped away from work for about three months. And during that time, I felt like, you know, if I'm going to be away from her, I need to be doing something that it would make her proud. And that ultimately is making the world a better place for her. And so it was very unfortunate, actually, because I came back to work. And the first project they put me on was for Best Buy, which if there was ever a superficial application of, of human-centered design, it was, you know, how do we redesign this retail experience that was kind of already dying? So this is a long-winded way to say human-centered design is a really powerful process for solving problems, but ultimately it's mostly used in the corporate world, and that's not where I want it to be. So my husband, George, my co-founder, and I um, started Greater Good Studio to basically apply and adapt the process and the principles of human-centered design to social problems, um, challenges like you know, housing insecurity and uh, early literacy, um, healthcare, you know, certainly is a, is a whole series of systems that really needs a redesign, public services, um, and ultimately to be working on problems that we felt were more interesting, um, quite frankly, than, you know, which, <laughs> which spray can is, is, is best for a housewife, um, but also more meaningful and, and, and ultimately more challenging. So now what I do at Greater Good Studio um, is we design for our clients, who are mostly nonprofits and foundations, we design new programs, um, new tools, and sometimes new strategies uh, that help our clients to better meet the needs of the people they are serving. Um, and those are often people living in poverty, people living with various forms of oppression, whether that's an underserved neighborhood that's been, you know, disinvested or ravaged by crime, or, um, you know, individuals that are frontline workers, you know, housing advocates, social workers, folks like that. So understanding those people and their needs, as well as their assets, and then translating those into design solutions, designed opportunities. Whoa. <laughs> Sarah, I just want to... I have like a thousand questions for you. 
um, <laughs> be ready for 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 the mind blown sound people cuz so one thing people listening and you Sarah may not know about me is in terms of you you know strengths finder right i've heard of it mhm okay so my top two strengths are restorative which mm-hmm. is fixing problems basically it's kind of like the fixer aspect mm-hmm. of and then the second thing is strategic so everything that you are talking about is literally intellectually making every burner bubble over right now. <laughs> um, I want to back up a little, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. Because I want to make sure that, that, that I understand what, what human-centered design is and also kind of what that looks like. Because what I heard yeah. was you actually would roll up to people's houses and see how they are actually using that. How does that even come to be? Because that seems boggling in its own right, <laughs> right? Like, because people buy this product, and then Glade has to figure out who they are, then send you out and negotiate all of those things so that you can actually watch people using it? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is actually not at all the hardest part, but there, there, are, there are systems <laughs> in place. There are whole industries that do this stuff. Um, in the corporate world, I will say that recruiting people, end users, as we would call them, um, was way easier, quite honestly, in the, in the corporate space, because there are companies, I don't know if you've ever been solicited by someone who's like, I'm a recruiter, and I want to know if you want to participate in a focus group, it's about salad or whatever. Um, I actually used to kind of undercover participate in those types of things to like market research um, just to see basically how how shitty the competition was <laughs> um, <laughs> essentially because I, I think that, that focus groups are they have a time and place but it's it's not really human centered it's not really going to get you honest authentic insights um, but we would work with the same types of recruiting firms so I'll give you a good example um, we had a project for GE General Electric they were trying to understand the future of home energy management now this is years before the Nest came out the Nest and that whole line of products yep. really revolutionized revolutionized home energy. But at the time, um, there wasn't anything like that. And GE kind of said, you know, we think this is a nascent market that's really going to explode, help us understand um, how people are thinking about their home energy and what their needs are that we could potentially meet with products and services. Um, So we engaged a recruiting firm, we asked them to help us find people who were either, um, you know, very sort of um, tech focused when it came to their homes. So people who had like smart homes, you know, so I can turn on my lights with a remote control or have, you know, fancy security systems or the other kind of profile that we were looking for was folks who were already doing some level of their own power generation. So we actually went to San Diego where a lot of people, because the costs there make sense, it's so sunny, have solar panels on their roofs. Um, and, you know, recruiters, this is a whole industry, right? They're, they're, it's not headhunting. It's not recruiting you for a job, right. but it's market research recruiting. So they keep these lists of thousands, millions of people. They send out notes, you know, do you... Do you have a dog? How, how many legs does it have? No, I'm just kidding. But like, you know, <laughs> do, how often does it eat food? Like, what kind of food does it eat? Great, you qualify for a study. And then the recruiter would kind of confirm those folks. And I would say that in sort of 
if you will, mainstream America, you know, middle class, upper class, um, lots of people do market research because it's fun and you make a couple hundred bucks usually. Um, mm-hmm. So we would always have an incentive. Um, and we would then contact those people and say, hi, we're really nice. Um, you really want to invite us into your home. We're going to ask you about these things. It's going to be really fun and easy. And at the end, we'll give you, you know, $200 gift card to Amazon and people would go okay sounds a little weird but that's fine and for the most part they would they would do it um and usually by the end of a research session you know it'd be two or three of us we'd have you know cameras and notes and uh, we'd ask them all these questions often it would be something like a home tour you know show us around your home oh my gosh your solar panels are so interesting well why did you buy these particular ones you know and just just having a conversation very user-led conversations the the academic term would be ethnography would be what what we would do um sort of the study of people and you know it would be great um and then we'd say peace out love you know great to meet you like never see you again um in the social sector it's really different because basically for the most part um there's not a lot of companies that are looking for people living in poverty because they're not seen as a market, they're not seen as the customer for a lot of things, other than perhaps, you know, McDonald's or um, some, you know, financial services that are sort of targeting. I mean, there's a lot of predatory business out there, but that aside. Um, I feel like that could be like another two-hour conversation. <laughs> yes, like let's talk about making the poor a market. Um, that's There are books written about that. But in our case, recruiting is often not... Uh, mass market, if you will, because we're looking for specific people who engage with specific organizations in specific communities. So, for example, doing a project for a school, we need to talk to the students, the parents, the teachers, and the leadership of that school. Um, we did a cafeteria project many years ago um, and you know, had to come up with a whole range of not only recruiting, but research methods that would really help us understand the unique kind of lived experiences of all the different stakeholders. Actually, I missed an important one, the kitchen staff. Um, So the the kitchen manager and the the food, um, they're called lunchroom attendants, uh, were actually a really important user. And so, you know, we made, like, we put a flyer in the school's newspaper and said, hey, parents, you know, we'll give you $100 if we can come interview you in your home about your child's eating and how you want it to be when they're at school. Um, we actually uh, shadowed the lunchroom attendants, so actually like worked alongside them serving food um, to really get inside kind of their heads and, and feel what the, the experience of serving lunch was like from their perspective, um, interviewed the teachers and the staff, and probably our favorite method was we actually, because young children are terrible interviewees. <laughs> they, they cannot tell you they're, why they they're unreliable it. narrators. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do things and you can understand their behavior if you observe it, but they cannot tell you why. <laughs> you know, like why did you choose that food? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I like it. I don't know. You know, so that whole prefrontal put, cortex not being developed, it, it probably does hinder your research. Hindered some of it, yeah. Well, so we just, but then that's fine because you know I can't expect a child to give me a dissertation. So we put GoPro cameras on their heads um, and basically had them each day for a week. We had about ten kids in K through five or K through four, um, 
go through the lunch line, eat their lunch, toss their lunch, and then get back in line. And then we'd take off the GoPro. So we had about 30 minutes of footage from the child's perspective, literally from seeing the world as they saw it. Um, And, you know, we learned, we learned so much about (laughs) how basically stupid the lunch line is. (laughs) It's a total waste of time. Um, How eating is really not the priority of a seven-year-old when they're in the lunchroom. It's their first break of the day. They want to goof off. They want to talk to friends. They want to brag about their iPad, whatever it is. They don't want to eat. And how annoying the adults are in the room because they just walk around and say, eat your food, eat your food. Um, and so insights that come from that deep, whether it's deep conversation or deep observation are really the kinds of learnings that lead to the most, I would say, insightful or authentic new user experiences. And so in the case of the cafeteria, just to play that example out, um, we ended up designing um, a system, a food serving system that just eliminated the lunch line completely. Um, we had the kids go straight to the tables, So that right there saves five minutes out of a 20 minute lunch period. So the adults loved it because they were like, we just want the meeting. And then the lunchroom attendants would serve the food to the students on trays at the tables, like a long tray that they would sort of roll down the table and kids could have some time to choose what they wanted to eat, which that was sort of our insight from some of the parents is, well, if I give them a choice, then they feel agency in their dinner, whatever it is. Do Mm -hmm. do you want chicken or fish? Well, I want fish. Okay, they're more likely to eat the fish because they chose it. Um, and so, but the lunch line really doesn't allow for that. In theory, the policy says kids are supposed to have a choice every day, but in practice, everyone's rushing them along, including us. When we were lunchroom attendants, we were like, hurry, there's 50 kids behind. (laughs) So the new system, which this school, you know, prototyped with us, um, the recruiting was, you know, back to your original question was very organic, very relational, um, and based on kind of, we would meet with one person, they would find out that we were nice and not there to exploit them. And then they would tell their friend and we would sort of move along the, they weren't, it wasn't a market, if you will, of people, it was actual users. So recruiting actually becomes a lot more important, a little more difficult, but ultimately obviously way more rewarding. Hearing this example immediately makes me time travel back into my early twenties and for me, coming out of school, I was actually a CPA. I was I was an accountant who eventually really? got the piece of paper that said, you know, I was qualified by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to count some beans. <laughs> but I got my start in trouble, debt restructuring and bankruptcy. And I'm hearing what you're describing and thinking about when I would roll out to jobs and a lot of times it was, you know, under cover of night, you're going to be at project undisclosed name in, you know, in this city, travels booked a flight for you. You need to be there in two days. Don't tell anyone where you're going. Because, you know, we would come in before a bankruptcy and try to figure out, like, could this be turned around without the public splatter and splash? Or, you know, what's going on here? And I'm, I'm hearing this approach to problem solving and thinking, where have you been all my life, human centered design? Because a lot of what you're talking about would be 
us going in and talking to different stakeholders. Mm-hmm. You know, partners would generally be talking to the executives and the rest of us would be trying to get an understanding of, you know, sitting down with the accounts payable department and what's going on in your world, what's happening here, what are the calls you're facing, who are the loudest creditors, you know, just really trying to assess what is going on here, where yeah. can we put a Band-Aid and, you know, what else do we need to analyze to even begin to fix this situation? Mm. And I can only imagine the applications hearing just this example of a cafeteria. Yeah, I mean, we find that the process and in many cases just the principles, so like empathy, deep listening, um, and then also brainstorming and iteration, having lots of ideas, testing them out, those kinds of things are pretty applicable across industries. Um, And I think, you know, design, human-centered design has essentially been a luxury for many years. It's been kind of owned by the corporate world in order to maximize profits. And I understand that. I don't I don't have anything against the, you know, the the wonderful designers who work on making, you know, the next like skew for, for Cheetos every day. Like they, somebody has to do that work. It's totally fine. Um, we wanted to show, I think, the design world in part um, by founding this company and, and working in this space, we wanted to show designers that, you know, your, your service to the greater good does not have to be a nights and weekends pro bono, you know, uh, once a year kind of um, side hustle. Like, you can do this for a living. We didn't really know if that was true when we started the company. <laughs> Um, but we had a hunch because it just seemed like there were, cause I always volunteered. I always kind of had this, you know, desire to whatever, whether it was like visit with the homeless at shelters or serve food or hang out with early, you know, kids and help them with their homework. Like I just always was doing some kind of volunteering. Um, but I never saw that as being a potential career path. Um, for me, who had I'd studied design and I was firmly like, I'm an innovator, like nonprofits, do they need innovation? I don't know. No, actually, they really do. <laughs> um, I can imagine. Yeah. There's certainly a lot more interest in our work right now than there is a market. Um, I think we would love to be a little bit bigger of a company. We are. We're, we're nine full-timers, nine, nine and a half, maybe about to be ten. Um and we've grown, you know, slowly and steadily over the years, but I think there are so many organizations and community groups out there who are like, oh, this is totally what we need, but we don't have the funding. And so that's always the tension, but our focus in more recent years has been to kind of educate the philanthropy community about human-centered design and how it can help your grantees be more strategic and more innovative, um, more resilient, et cetera. So um, that's been kind of a, a focus for us more recently is to try and change the field so that um, these, these mission-driven organizations can be competitive. Thank you for answering my very next question, which was these high-touch services must come at a, at a significant cost because your investment in a single project in terms of time and energy must be huge. 
Um, yes and no. I would say that, um, so there are certainly some companies that are sort of, well, we'll just call them traditional design firms where, you know, a project is minimum half a million dollars, um, just to sort of do anything. You know, it seems like, okay, we've started a project. Here's your invoice. Um, and that's the kinds of companies that I used to work at that my, my co-founder used to work at and a number of our team as well. We kind of used to work in these I would consider to be, you know, very expensive um, companies that were, yeah, exactly high touch, um, major investments, you know, working with C-level executives, that kind of thing. Um, I also felt like there was a lot of waste in that world. There were a lot of like fancy meals and late night cabs and, and burnout, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to um, be really, basically really cool with when people come to us, but they don't have money. Um, so that's happened. I mean, most organizations probably wouldn't wouldn't even come to us if they didn't have money because they'd feel like they would be left out of the room. But I feel like we take every opportunity to say, you know, sometimes we have to find the funding together to do the projects. So sometimes we'll, you know, we'll meet an organization. I worked with the Metropolitan Tenants Organization. This is a a renter's rights group in Chicago and they're super awesome and very grassroots. And they were like, we have this idea for an app that would empower low income tenants to basically get their problem solved with their landlords. And I was like, that's really compelling to me too. I can see why that's needed. Um, you know, and I think our fees on that project were probably something like $40,000, which isn't insignificant, but it's not a million dollars. That's something you can find funding for. Yeah. And there are grants at that level. And we ended up working with them to meet a few times and make a presentation for a major Chicago. So the MacArthur Foundation, we sat down with them um, a number of times over the course of, gosh, it might've been a year. Um, and ultimately they ended up getting a significant grant, which could pay for our work as well as the work of a a, a web developer to actually code the thing. So, so, you know, just the, the willingness to be a partner with clients, I actually think is a really, it's actually a nice dynamic to say, you know, in versus in the corporate world, Hey, it was us and the client and you're kind of combatants, you know, you sit down on opposite sides of the table and you try to hash out, well, how much do you have? Well, how much do you need? You know, and kind of figuring out the the price of a project. Um, Not that I was ever necessarily part of those conversations, but that that was the sense I got was that it was kind of a negotiation. Um, In our case, it's usually um, we have a grant and it is X amount of money. And we're so excited to have this money because now we can bring you in and work together. I mean, I would say our projects range from maybe $10,000 to $100,000. Um, at the same time, we are starting to get asked to kind of propose on larger projects, which I don't know that those larger projects existed seven years ago when we started. Um, but, you know, we're just wrapping up an 18-month engagement with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which for us was, you know, by far our longest project and our biggest budget was just over a million dollars, which a million dollars for me is like, I just, it does not compute. I'm like, wait, I will <laughs> also, you know, and then my parents are like, are you getting a million dollars? I'm like, like, no, no. I'm getting a million dollars. Like I'm getting my salary. Like everyone's getting their salaries. Like 
a good 30% of that was just expenses that went to like flights and, you know, food and, 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 and all kinds of stipends and yeah. Oh yeah. You know, so, so it's not like that budget was, you know, for me personally, any kind of like cha-ching, but what it meant for our firm was we could hire one new person. We had some stability for a while in our pipeline and we were able to really dream big on this project. So that was an example of like, wow, okay, we've hit a new threshold. Um, you know, wow, look, look where we've come and, and let's see where the, where the work is going. But we tried to always be flexible and we tried to be affordable because to an extent, if we're not affordable, we can't work in this space. <laughs> like there just aren't, there's not more than one Robert Wood Johnson foundation. <laughs> like it is the country's largest health foundation. There's not another one. <laughs> so there are other foundations, but you know, the, the money in this, in this, in this space, really the money is not why we're working in this space. <laughs> is what it comes down to. No, because talk to me about, I, I read it on your website, and I said it earlier. But talk to me about how the concept of being a pissed off optimist came about. Yeah, so we were trying to define ourselves in terms of actually our hiring, um, in terms of who we wanted to bring onto the team. Um, you know, as I mentioned, when we started, it was just me and my husband. And you know, that's, that's easy enough. We, we kind of didn't have to define our team. Um, as as <laughs> that does make it in, a little easier, doesn't it? Yeah. We were like, it's, I don't know. It was, it was the George and Sarah show. And we really, <laughs> really did not know what we were doing at the time. Um, we're fast learners. It's great. Um, but you know, when we started to hire and eventually hire some, some folks full-time and actually really when this came up was when we needed to hire people that we didn't know. Because the first few hires were people that we knew, like, oh, you're my friend and you're awesome, so let's bring you in. And that was sort of a, you know, we could do that for a few years because, you know, we were small and didn't have a HR director, for example. But thinking about job postings and thinking about, you know, being more intentional about growing a team, um, we said, well, who are we looking for? And it's really this combination Right. So I would say if you had to pin us down, George would be more pissed off and I'd be more optimistic. But really, <laughs> we, both, we very much share these traits. So we want someone, if we're thinking about a candidate, you know, someone to, to join our team, we, we want someone who's pissed off. You can't be alive today and not be pissed off. And if you're if you're not pissed off, you're not paying attention. Um, you know, the the problems of racism and sexism and, and all the, you know, wealth inequalities that, that face our, our country and our world today. I mean, these are not new problems, but they're they're really they're really feeling and, and you know, this was many years before Trump came and kind of smacked us all in the face with his you know, unique flavor of, of ridiculous bullshit. But before that even we were like, you know, the world is not fair. Um, and just for me, actually kind of confronting the fact that for me, I always had a pretty great life. I mean, I wasn't the most privileged, but I got to go to a great school. I had a loving two-parent family. You know, we owned our home. All of these little things are huge factors that turn into, you know, they, they, they start out as privilege and they turn into power as you grow. And, you know, my network of friends from high school, they're all successful now. Just all the things that you know, have made life really charmed for me. I'm, you know, I, I don't think I'm like, I did not grow up with silver spoons, but like we were comfortable and I have three younger siblings and we are close and just lots of, lots of things where I feel like I've been very lucky. Right. And then the more you learn about how lucky you are, the more pissed you become like, wait, other people don't have a dad. 
Other people don't have a job. Other people don't have a house that is safe for them to live in um, or teachers that are able to manage the classroom or, you know, not because that's the teacher's fault, but because, you know, they have 35 children or whatever it is. There's so many things that just are unfair to me. And even as a young child, I was extremely focused on making things fair, um, like lots of really nerdy things. Like I would... Tell me more, my- Sarah. Tell me more. <laughs> My siblings, there were four of us, and we had this minivan, and everybody wanted to sit in the front, so I sort of instituted a system where, you know, maybe I got the front on Mondays, Stacy got it on Tuesdays, Jess got on Wednesdays, no, on Thursdays, and on Friday, we had to call it. I get the front, you know, <laughs> and, and just <laughs> things like that, you know, everybody had one set of blinds in the house that we had to open in the morning and close at the night, and just having there be um, as much of an equal distribution of resources and responsibilities um, as is humanly possible in our house. And I, I remember my parents would constantly say to me, they're like, Sarah, but life isn't fair. You know, they would always kind of try and remind me of that. But I want it to be fair, and I, I really still do. Um, so so we want someone who's pissed because we want someone who understands and is eyes open about, you know, the challenges our society faces. But they can't only be pissed off, right? Because then yes. you're an then you're just mad and you don't bring solutions to the table and you end up alienating yourself because you're just angry and complaining. Um, and we know people like that too, and that's fine. Um, there is a place for you know organizing and activism for sure, um, but our team can't just be pissed. Um, we also have to be optimistic. And so I think the other side of that coin, which you know George is definitely a dreamer, I'm a little more practical, Um, but I definitely still feel a strong sense of optimism. I think, um, design school maybe does that to you a little bit when you are, you know, taught or trained as a designer, you're kind of told, um, subliminally by your teachers, like you can solve any problem, (laughs) um, which, you know, not I, I, I'm always conscious to not let that turn into hubris, like, oh, we're so amazing. But, but to have some inherent faith that, we can make things better or that things can get better, you know, whether that is about us or not, um, that optimism. I mean, I am, I am super good at silver linings. Like, you know, somebody, you know, is leaving our company and I'm like, well, it was a good opportunity to, you know, promote this other person. Or, I mean, you know, my sister gets a flat tire. I'm like, you needed a new tire anyway. Like I just, It, it, it actually really drives my, my, my family crazy because they're like, oh, my God, can you just let there not be a silver lining? But I'm like, oh, it's something, you know. Um, and I think, you know, I think designers are inherently optimistic about, you know, their abilities to, to kind of change the world, if you will. But again, you know, to the point about being not too pissed, it's like you can't be too optimistic to where you're naive. Um, we do see that a lot with design as well a lot of times candidates come in and they're kind of like from a design background and they're like I just made this beautiful poster and like yay racism is going to go away and we're like no it's not that easy like you can't just envision that your skills are kind of all the world needs um so So is is this where your engineering background comes in to sort of temper that (laughs) <laughs> Maybe, you know, I don't know if I would even use the phrase my engineering background. <laughs> I graduated from college, yes, with a degree in mechanical engineering. I did take the classes. I did get these. I was able to pass with a 3.0 average. 
but I never really worked as an engineer. I really was attracted to things like 3D modeling software, so like making pictures of things in, in three dimensions. But engineering school, <laughs> uh, so my parents wanted me to be an engineer. I think they made that pretty clear because I did in high school love math and science. I was particularly drawn to physics and I was, you know, in all these advanced math classes. I, I In high school, math was awesome. It was about logic, and there was a right answer, and I could usually yes. get it. Um, I was like, I'm, oh, I'm I so failed. your people on this point. <laughs> yeah, math in, math in high school, I, I really did love. Math in college, oh, my God. So I get to Northwestern, which is, you know, just a much bigger pond, right, than my kind of small private school in Florida, and I'm suddenly in these, you know, chemistry seminars with 500 students and two of them are getting 100% on the test and everyone else is curved against those jokers <laughs> and I'm getting a D. And my parents are calling me going, what is happening? Like, why are we sending you to this fancy school? Like, why are you not excelling? Are you studying? What's happening? You know, are you going off the deep end? I was like, I'm studying every single night. Like, I just can't. It just got a lot harder. Um, and I think I thought that engineering, when I was in high school, I think I thought engineering was design. As in, I'll be engineering. I'll be making new products and figuring out what they should be and how they work. But really, you know, and many engineers do get to a point in their career where that is what they're doing. They are able to kind of drive insights and drive new, new things. But really, engineering is, is kind of like, you know, even maybe law or accounting where it's like you're there as a safety check. You're there to make sure things don't go really wrong. You're not so much the idea people and you're definitely not the people people. <laughs> and me in engineering was just a, like a total fish out of water. I was like, I am not going to survive these four years if I don't do something. So what I did was I made friends. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned how to make friends with all kinds of really smart people um, and get them to help me with my homework. <laughs> um, and really, I think that's how I got through engineering school was in making friends and finding ways to kind of build camaraderie around how hard this stuff was. So I, <laughs> I graduated, but I definitely wouldn't say that I have an engineering background, just that I have a degree. It was in problem solving and in friendship building. Um, and that as soon as I discovered design, I said, oh, that, that's what I thought engineering would be. And I kind of went right to it. How did you discover it? I mean, did you just sort of stumble upon it or were you kind of after you got done with school, you were like, oh, no, I do not want to go into this work. Well, I'd love to tell you. And if I was interviewing for a job, I would tell you it was completely intentional. Like, oh, I definitely knew what I wanted to do because that's always what employers want to hear. But no, I definitely didn't know. I just knew I didn't want to do engineering, um, but I didn't know what it was I did want to do. It was 2001, so the dot-com bubble was, was bursting. <laughs> Even just to the point where in maybe February of that year of 2001, I'd gotten a job offer. It was for some... <laughs> The, the name of the company is actually kind of indicative of the, the era. They were called Neovation. Who knows what they actually did? Yes, <laughs> they, that's that's a perfect <laughs> name for that period. It's so dot-com-y. It was like, we do software integration, agile technology. I was like, okay, you're going to pay me $50,000 a year. Like, great, you teach me everything I need to know. That's fine. So I got this job, and then by June... 
they're like, ooh, sorry about that. The company imploded. Um, <laughs> and I'm like 21 years old. I'm like, am I still going to get my signing bonus? They're like, oh, got to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it just, it didn't happen. Um, I had to really quickly scramble. It felt like kind of a smack in the face, like, okay, real world. What are you going to do? I was a nanny for a few weeks um, that didn't work out very well. I became a headhunter, actually. That was sort of the job I found in the paper. Um, so recruiting people, and that really taught me about sales. Um, but I spent a year basically on the phone trying to convince people um, who were looking for jobs to look for jobs with me and people who were hiring to use me to find their people. Um, but I also did things like I tried... Um, improv comedy classes. I tried to get my real estate license. I took classes and actually came close to getting my real estate license. Um, I raided restaurants for Lettuce Entertain You, which is a restaurant sort of chain here that has a lot of high-end restaurants. And so my boyfriend at the time and I got to eat a fancy meal once a week, but we were totally scrambling. Um, he was working in a temp job as well, and we were both going, we have these great degrees, we have so much debt, what are we supposed to do? Um, and what I started doing, you know, again, just really trying out lots of things and trying to figure out what it was I should do. Um, I think this must have been on some early version of the internet. I don't know what it was. I'm sure it doesn't exist in this form today, but at the time Northwestern had some kind of alumni lookup system. And so you could look up and find people who'd studied what you studied and then contact them. And so I just remember calling, it was all these like older men, like, hi, I study mechanical engineering. Like, what do you do now? And some dude, I, I, I will never know who it was. I wish I could find this person because he truly changed my life. Um, but I, I've, I've thought about it. I, I really have not even a clue as to like who he was or where he worked. Um, but he said, well, why did you want to do engineering in the first place? And I said, I, I actually wanted to make toys. Like I, thought that would be cool and that was kind of the thing I wanted to make and he said well have you thought of industrial design and I said no what's that and he said well you know there's a couple schools in town but you'd need a portfolio to get into Columbia so I don't think you should apply there you should apply to the Institute of Design because you don't even need a portfolio and I was like great will do <laughs> and I did and I applied to the Institute of Design I got in and I started and, you know, three years of kind of intense Kool-Aid drinking about, you know, design and research and the power of, of human-centered thinking um, and four internships. I was super, super intense about joining clubs and, you know, applying to every opportunity I could find um, because I knew that, I, you know, my parents basically were like, don't screw this up again. <laughs> You didn't do engineering. You can't also not do design. Like you need to find a job. Um, but but I did. I you know I ended up. I worked in retail design for about three years. Um, I got to do some furniture design for Steelcase, which was kind of fun. Um, and then did innovation consulting for about three and a half years before founding Greater Good. So it was you know circuitous, but ultimately very rewarding. <laughs> Thank you for being honest and not giving the sort of recruiting and hiring answer, because I think there's so much value in that. It makes me think when I realized I was, you know, I was doing trouble debt restructuring and bankruptcy work, which is, 
You know, I mean, I literally have achieved a hundred hour week. I mean, a lot of them were more like 70 to 80, um, you know, and at, on some projects it was like travel every single week and mm-hmm. wild hours and mostly men. And I think I got to a point in my mid twenties where even my guts were irritable. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I literally was beginning to have a health crisis where even my guts were not cooperative most days. Yeah. Um, and I recognize like, this is not the work for me. I, yeah. you know, and I, I didn't know how to get out of it. And I think, it sounds like you were really good about getting out there and just trying different things, even if it meant a scramble. I was still like, all right, well, I have to figure out how to, to, to make this change. At the same time, I'm still showing up at work and making this all work out. Because living in New York has that funny way of making you adult when your rent is, you know, like $3,000 <laughs> or something, you know, absurd like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I love that you shared this, that it you know, this, this was a scramble. This wasn't like the nice, clean, well-designed human-centered process that you probably would have hoped for, right? No, certainly. And I mean, I feel lucky that that was really probably the first time in my life that I ever faced serious adversity. I mean, I'd done, you know, public speaking competitions and basketball and some stuff in high school and middle school that was like, you know, hard. But really hard, but achievable. And to suddenly be graduating, not have a job, and feel this enormous weight of the world on my shoulders, because I think I had that wellspring of, all right, I've got some resilience. Let's go. What are we going to do? I was able to not let it get me depressed. You know, I was like, okay, here we go. What are we going to do? I mean, it definitely did not feel that way at the time. I know that, you know, the boyfriend that I was living with at the time, um, both of us just every night, you know, as we're making our craft mac and cheese <laughs> and experimenting with different recipes of craft mac and cheese in order to give ourselves some variety. Like we were really, you know, we were both making like $300 a week, you know, and in trying to kind of, and like sharing the studio apartment, like it was not an easy time. Um, but I just had the sense of like, well, I, I've done things before I can do this and you know I'm lucky that it didn't break me but ultimately having that year to make a little bit of money but try a bunch of things um, kind of you know prototype if you will different careers um, was you know there's something I learned from every one of those career every one of those little jobs um, that I still take with me like rating restaurants is a total good primer for observation um, and you know improv is a huge help when doing collaborative work and doing consulting and recruiting was just all about sales and essentially business development, which, you know, I got a little less scared to pick up the phone and call someone new. So things like that are really valuable. Um, I feel like that's what I always tell people when, you know, younger folks are like, how do I make my way in the world? And like, what should my career path be? And I'm like, (laughs) well, you know, learn something from everything you do and find a way to shape it into a narrative so that it doesn't seem so random, (laughs) even though it is. Absolutely. I mean, I get that all the time where people are like, wait, your credentials are your CPA, but you're a health and lifestyle strategist. And it's like, the reality is, I'm curious. I ask a lot of questions. I'm comfortable coming into a painful, chaotic situation and being able to sort of be with people Mm -hmm. and see the individual constraints around us in that Mm -hmm. situation and making a plan from that point. 
And when I describe the work as that, like you just see it click for people, you know, it's like, no, I'm not accounting your life. (laughs) (laughs) But I love that you also share, pull something from everything, right? Like you, I love that you use the word prototyping, that Mm. it just makes me giggle inside. Um, But the notion to really mine our experiences, like sometimes we forget. And I did some of this bouncing around like you did. It's sort of like the job stayed the same, but all of the activities, the volunteerism, learning a new hobby, maybe it was French, maybe it was knitting, maybe it was making a business plan of, could I open a 1950s bowling alley? You know, doing things like that in my off hours at work or my time outside of work. And then figuring out like, oh, I really enjoyed that process. But like, what did I enjoy about it? Like, what was the kick for me? And I started just kind of data collecting those things. Yeah. And that's what ultimately, you know, when I was shifting my career later, I decided to kind of do a pivot table on my resume. So instead of Mm. just having a chronological, here were all my jobs that told this weird story of, I kind of just keep jumping from one mess to another. um, I decided to just sort of flip it and make it about the skills and then just have the chronology and the names of the companies at the bottom. And that was a hugely difficult Mm. process I mean, I think, you know, certain things were, were documented, you know, in performance evaluations and things like that over the years and what each what I had done on each project and notes I'd kept about that. But it, some of the really interesting stuff that allowed me to transition to this kind of work was those extracurriculars that I tried on and and found out who I was in the process of playing around with all of those. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I think a lot of people sort of dream of making their, you know, side hustle their day job or making their hobbies into their profession. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard. It's really hard to do that. Um, so congratulations on, you know, sticking with it. It's super cool. But that's not to say, listeners, I felt like a dope in the process and I'm sure, you know, and I had a lot of friends that were like, what are you doing? You're making a business plan about trying to start a bowling alley that serves 1950s cocktails. Like what (laughs) the hell are you thinking? Like you're an accountant. You really really did that? (laughs) Yes. There was, there was a bar in my neighborhood on the Lower East Side that was closing Mm. and it had a huge downstairs that could have been opened up. And I love all things 50s. My husband and I last year bought a house that was built in 1957. And I would love it to be, you know, as we go room to room, sort of updating things, trying to preserve and keep a lot of it, but also not have it look like a Disneyland attraction at the same time. Um, So yeah, I I loved my, my 50s dresses and my old 50s handbags. And I thought, what if I could just be the proprietress of this place that had, you know, this very, like, Mad Men, I think it was before Mad Men even existed, Mm, or maybe around the early years, thinking, well, what if the upstairs, you could get a bar, you know, you could get a drink at the bar, and it was nice cocktails and period sort of furniture and things like that. And what if downstairs was like, the old school bowling alley? Uh And so, you know, 
I think it was just a way for me to cogitate about what what I dug and and what I liked like visually and and it just gave me something to chew on in a way that the problems I was solving at work I was becoming more disinvested in. Kind of mm. like you were talking about like just recognizing I'm just making money for Glade. Yeah. Or Best Buy. Like <laughs> like I'm solving a problem and it's kind of neat, but it's not the kind of problems I want to be solving. There's nothing fulfilling here. Right, exactly. Sarah, I want to switch gears a little bit. I know you mentioned earlier that you're married to your co-founder and that you're also a mom. And I am sensing that we are pretty kindred spirits in terms of asking questions and problem solving and things like that. When you think about all of the challenges working moms like you face, does it make your brain start to go in overload? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I don't know. My brain is pretty good at compartmentalizing. (laughs) Um, So I can kind of separate, you know, the home stuff from the work stuff from the relationship stuff. But there is a lot of stuff. Um, I particularly appreciated, and this is maybe just a side note if if any of your listeners are interested, but if you know the the podcast called The Longest Shortest Time um, about parenting, um, they did a whole series about working moms. It was called It's a Real Mother, um, and it was really, really great to hear from other working mothers and examples of what companies were doing and and other countries were doing, um, because I think that you know, unless you are a working mother, um, you really don't totally understand. Um, so I would say, yes, there are definitely lots of challenges with being a working mother. And at the same time, I feel like I've gotten to a pretty good place of balance where I can sort of compartmentalize like I'm working at work and I'm in be really present at work. And then when I'm home, with my kids in the evenings and the mornings on the weekends, um, I really do my best to be really present with them. Um, but there are so many stupid societal expectations that make it hard. Um, usually those come from, you know, well-meaning friends or, you know, someone's asshole husband or whatever, or sometimes they come from you and you have to be really self-aware of the ways that you're, kind of expecting things on yourself that are unfair. You know, a great example of this. So I have a really great partner. My husband is, you know, very, um, very bought into the idea of equally shared parenting, um, which actually if folks don't know about um, the book, Equally Shared Parenting is really <laughs> awesome. It um, seems really aptly named too. It, it's the name is very good for what it is. No, no, it's, it's a perfect, um, basically dialogue. The book is written by a husband and wife and the husband writes the chapters that are kind of aimed at the man and the wife writes the chapters that are aimed at the woman, um, because they're saying different things to, to people based on, on what society expects of you. But basically, um, equally shared parenting is this theory that, um, between these four areas of your life. So your career, your child care, raising children, parenting, your house care and home home care, 
um, and chores and all that stuff. And then your fun, your hobbies or friends or social life, religious activities, whatever it is, that, that you and your partner should seek to spend about the same amount of time in each of those four areas. So it doesn't matter if you are a CEO and your husband is a janitor or vice versa, that you should work about the same as each other. Um, and, and not that you should be holding a, a stopwatch when, you know, going to work in the morning. Um, but really that it, what that does for us, I think is, and we read this book when we were pregnant with my daughter. Um, and it really, it really gave us a good framework to say, you know, every now and then one of us will say, Hey, I'm feeling out of balance in this area. Like I'm feeling like you're working all the time and I'm not able to get the work done that I need to do. Or, you're seeing friends a lot and I want to see friends or, you know, take a class or do something for myself. Um, can we talk about that? And, you know, so it's a, it's a never ending struggle. Um, but I would say that trying to be as balanced with my partner as possible, um, has, has truly made, um, my career possible, which even the fact that I have to say that kind of pisses me off because he would never, you know, a guy would never say, well, my, my wife is really who's, who's allowed me to reach my career heights. Um, I feel like guys just sort of assume that they can reach heights in their career. And, and, you know, if a woman is there to help them, great, but if not, they're going to do it anyway. Um, I feel like, you know, this year, for example, I was doing a lot of travel. I traveled almost every week. Um, for about six months, which was for me just heartbreaking. Um, every time I had to say goodbye to the kids, it was really sad. And, you know, I started a really slippery slope, um, unhealthy habit of getting them a souvenir every time I travel. Oh, no. <laughs> um, because it was, it was a total band aid, it really backfired. Because I would be like, you guys, I'm leaving. And they're like sad for two minutes. And they're like, but are you going to bring us a treat? And I'm like, I will. And so then it was all sunshine and rainbows. We can't wait to see you again and get your treat. And three days later I come home and I'm like, I'm home. They're like, what'd you bring us? Oh no. It's just like crushing. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, come on. Don't I'm your present. They're like, yeah, yeah. But like, is it popcorn? (laughs) Is it a stuffed animal? Like, why are we talking? (laughs) Um, you pulled me away from cartoons and playing yeah, with for friends. Like, right. For a hug? What? A hug? That's not worth anything to me. Um, but so so I don't know that I would necessarily recommend this whole souvenirs <laughs> plan. <laughs> but, you know, me traveling so much necessarily meant that my husband had to hold down the fort. And that meant a lot of extra, you know, a beyond a balance, um, driving them to school, picking them up from school, going to teacher conferences. Um, packing lunches, planning for birthday parties. I mean, all the little things that, you know, at least when the Equally Shared Parenting book came out and there was a big New York Times article about it, it said, you know, men and women work about the same as each other now. We have about parity with regard to who works in a household. Um, but women still do 90% of the childcare and 90% of the housework. And I was like, that is some bullshit. Like, I was really upset about that. Because <laughs> I looked at my life and our situation. We'd been, I think we were engaged at the time when the article first came out. And I immediately, <laughs> I was like, read this. Let's talk. You know, and he's like, oh, God. 
But, you know, what they argue in the book, and I, I know I'm sort of on a pedestal about this book, but it really, I mean, like nothing else I've seen um, has has helped me see the challenges of, of basically our sexist society um, and a way out of that, um, which you can't change everyone, but you can set the conditions in your own home um, to not favor this sort of, you know, patriarchal uh, plan where, you know, the guy gets to be fun daddy and doesn't have to actually do any of the hard things, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, it is is definitely hard to be away from them. You know, every now and then I'll feel guilty when um, my daughter will say, well, you know, Mila's mom picks her up at three o'clock. You know, why can't you pick me up at three o'clock? And I'm like, because I still have two more hours of calls and meetings. Like, you know, I, I'll pick you up at 5.30 and you have fun, you know, hanging out after school with all the other friends. You know, it's nice that Mila gets to go home with her mom. That's wonderful for her. But, like, that's just not how our life is set up. I'm sorry. But I can't wait to see you at 5.30, you know. I'll definitely have those those pangs of, like, ooh, am I missing? Am I missing things? And I know I'm missing things. I know there are wonderful moments when her tooth falls out and I'm not there or, you know, whatever, something goes wrong and she just needs to cry. And like, I would be the best person potentially to comfort her in that situation. But I also know that work gives me so much fulfillment um, in a way that being a parent doesn't it being a parent is fulfilling in so many other ways um that i i now feel complete because i have kind of these these two parts of my life but if i wasn't working oh man i think i'd be going i think i'd be going crazy and i don't think i would be as good of a parent because i wouldn't be present with my children i think i'd be resentful or perhaps bored like what what else could i be doing um and you know i i very much respect. I have many friends who stay home. I think it's a wonderful thing. My mother stayed home for many years. Um, but ultimately for me, the balance of, you know, being able to really put it all into work when I'm at work and then completely shut it down and just be a mom for like two and a half hours every night is perfect. It's perfect. And I'll be with them their whole lives or my whole life, the rest of my whole life. So even if I'm not seeing them, you know, a hundred hours a week, actually probably, well, whatever it is, even if I'm not seeing them every minute of every day, ultimately I have a whole lifetime to be their mom and they only get one and it's me. So I kind of feel okay about it. And it sounds like you're being really mindful and intentional about the moves you make and recognizing you have to do you. Like this isn't meant to be some political stance on staying home is the right thing or going to work is the right thing. But you recognized, I would lose it. I would, you know, I imagine you are a very deep thinker most of the time. (laughs) So yeah, like left in between like the four walls of your home, you, it sounds in what little conversation we've had so far today, I'm guessing you'd probably be crawling up them. Like, if you weren't intellectually stimulated. So it's it's important that you know that about yourself. And then, Sarah, how old's your daughter? So my daughter just turned seven, and my son just turned four, and we have a baby on the way. Congratulations. (laughs) Yes, this was definitely a decision that took many years. (laughs) to really be sure about but yeah so I'm just starting my second trimester and starting to tell people which is very exciting um it is a boy 
which is many is for it has its pros and its cons. Um, but yeah, I'm just kind of coming out of the first trimester hell and now actually feeling pretty good. Um, finally able to like wear maternity clothes and, you know, not be sick and have headaches every day. So everything's good. But, well, congratulations yeah. again, and thank <laughs> you for this Le Vital Core Salon exclusive. Um, you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, at that age, too, you know, at four and at seven, your, your two now can't see what you're modeling for them. Mm. Right? Like, as I as I listen to how you're balancing this, and I balance that with private conversations that I have, especially with clients that are in their mid-40s through probably mid-50s and have been working moms, and some of them part-time, some of them full-time, and a few that have stayed home. What's interesting to hear women at that age talking about how they've balanced things is often what they've modeled as well and being really conscious about what they've modeled, right? Like if my daughter just saw me making myself crazy and pulling my hair out at home, like what kind of mom would I have been? (laughs) Yeah, I, I think I heard a study recently that was very validating for me that basically said it's not about the number of hours you spend with your kids that really affects them so much as it is how you are when you're with them. And if you are with them all the time, but you're stressed or anxious, or, you know, you could only be with them for a little while and still be stressed and anxious. Basically, if you're stressed and anxious with your kids, that is going to have a more detrimental effect on them than you being gone. Um, (laughs) Better to be gone than to be there, but, you know, pissy and and not not showing them what it means to be kind of a healthy adult um so I felt really validated by that because it's something that I've always kind of felt to be the case one of the questions that I think you had sent that was the hardest probably for me to think about and I thought about it kind of all night and all morning (laughs) um and it was how do you define success I was like, good God, there are so, I mean, I don't know where to start. There's so many things. And yet I don't know that any of those things is the right thing. Um, but what I came to just in my own thinking about it, it's pretty long term, but ultimately I think success for me will be having a career that my kids are proud of. Um, you know, not that I wasn't motivated by my own self or my friends and family, but really wanting to make them proud um, by doing basically world-changing work um i don't think they'll to your point i don't think they'll know it for a long time they may not know it till they're you know my age i mean i'm 38 and i'm really proud of my parents and the work that they've done my mom is a school librarian she brings joy to kids every day Um, my dad is a foot doctor he brings i guess a different kind of joy (laughs) um to people who have foot pain um but they both love what they do and they both have made you know sort of beautiful careers out of it and for me now to say i'm proud of you guys i would think would be a great gift for them and so i hope that one day my kids can say hey my mom did something really cool and i'm okay with the fact that she wasn't there to pick me up at three (laughs) o'clock 
I love this. And it's funny, as you were saying, having a career that my kids will be proud of, I sort of edited it in my own head to having a career that my adult kids will be proud of. Sure. Yeah, and, exactly. And partly, it. I mean, this is sort of a funny story and an aside, but the conference I was speaking at last week was to a bunch of air traffic controllers <laughs> and working with them. And I got a tour later in the week of one of the towers and in talking to this gentleman who was the operations manager for this tower and all of the air traffic controllers, we somehow got on the topic in this four-hour tour where they generously answered 10 billion of my questions about how everything worked. He was really funny because he said he got invited to his kids, you know, bring your parent to school day. And, you know, it was kind of like a science fair for all the adults. Like, all the adults had to have a little table and a sign talking <laughs> oh about God. what they did. And, you know, he's like, it was really intimidating because I came as, like, an air traffic controller. And I just, you know, had some charts and things that looked like our radar screens and stuff like that all set up. And he's like, and in walked the kid's dad who worked for the, a SWAT team with a canine. Oh, and he's oh, like, come on. He's like, you could see every parent in the room shrink. <laughs> and then what kids, like, at a young age found funny, because I think he said his, his son was nine, around nine at the time. And all the parents just looked at each other and thought, oh, shit, we can't top the canine SWAT <laughs> no. dad. <laughs> and, we and, should all go home. <laughs> and what it what turned out to be fascinating, and literally the SWAT dad came over to his table because he's like, "What are you doing down here?" Because every kid, all I hear him talking about is the air traffic control dad. And it turns out he had little tiny, I'm talking, you know, like under an inch or smaller model planes that oh. he had, like on what looked like a chart, right? Because he couldn't bring the computer and, like, the, yeah. the radar with him. Yeah, And yeah. so he was kind of showing them using these little plastic model planes that made sound, and that was, like, the highlight of the day. So, like, what kids think is important and cool. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that when they're adults, they'll probably get it. When they're 38, if they think you're cool, then that's success. <laughs> Exactly. Right now they're like, right, what do you design? Are you a teacher? So we talk about sometimes we do teaching and they're like, I don't understand who are your students. Wait, they're grownups. What? Like they definitely don't understand. Sometimes I'll try to help them understand like the project that I was traveling for so much. I said, well, I have to go to these other places in the country because I have to help kids there. And they kind of said, oh, okay, well, that's fine. That, you know, we're kids, you could help us, but if you want to help other kids, okay. <laughs> it was a little more acceptable than if I'd been like, I'm working with doctors to, you know, or whatever. Um, cause it was a project about child centered communities. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, one day, one day, if they, if they think what we do is cool, I can say my work here is done. But that is a really healthy barometer of success. And I'm I want to, I deeply appreciate the thought that you put into that and, and really considered it in a real way. Cause it is a really hard question and I get that feedback a lot, but I also think it's a really important question. Totally. Because if we don't define that success for ourselves, then just like you were talking earlier about 
what are cultural norms that we've absorbed and taken in, sometimes knowingly, sometimes even unknowingly, mm-hmm. and use that as our barometer. Dicey yeah. business. Yeah, no kidding. I was just going to say, and this might be a little bit going back to what we were saying before, but the idea of cultural norms and expectations, like there was one that I just wanted to mention because it comes up a lot with work and travel um, and parenting. So I travel, you know, a fair bit for work and so does my husband. And whenever he travels, you know, nobody really bats an eye. Um, But when I travel, Everybody reaches out, oh, how's George doing? Hey, George, do you need a hand? Should I bring you dinner? What's happening? You know, and it's like, okay, first of all, he's an extremely capable father. (laughs) Um, You know, the house does not burn down when I leave. Secondly, like, that's stupid. Like, what a low bar, you know? Um, and he's, I think I appreciate that he is always aware of those things. And he'll say things like, you know, yeah, everything's fine. I don't know what your concern is. Um, I had an aunt once. I was at a bachelorette party for my sister, and she was there as well. We were in Florida, and my aunt said, well, who's with the kids while you're here? Oh, is George babysitting? And I said, (laughs) so George is with the kids. And I wouldn't say babysitting. I would just say, you know, parenting. And, it, and she kind of gave me this look like, oh, whew, well, okay, fine, you know, different generations or whatever, you know. The, the lead balloon just fell into the room. <laughs> yeah. But it's like this low expectation is so lame. And, and basically what I try, and I this was also something I was thinking about, is like don't let your husband off the hook that easy. Like just because everyone else expects him to be a bozo doesn't mean that you should. Um, he's an amazing parent. And there have been studies about how, the biggest, you know, another, I I don't know exactly what this data actually is, but it comes from somewhere that says that basically a dad is, it makes a a really big difference, right? To a, to a child, whether they have a dad is more, you know, a present father, um, is, is more important than a lot of other things. Um, even if the mom is great, if she doesn't have that second partner, it doesn't have to be a dad. I think just a second parent, um, is, is really important. So I think just, you know, knowing that, um, my husband can and should be just as amazing of a parent as I am um, really helps us to feel like we are doing things right. And thank you for that example. I know taking on family and close friends in any sort of situation, but the fact that you spoke to it, it, it may not change the situation with your aunt, but it I feel like those conversations are important to have and to acknowledge. What advice do you have for women listening that get hit with those kind of comments on the regular? Like, are there any other good retorts or any good ways you've made those teachable moments? Yeah, oof, it is tricky. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to not have had many um, really tricky uh, political conversations at, you know, the family Thanksgiving table. I know a lot of folks have kind of been joking about that over the last year. You know, how do I talk to my uncle about, you know, gun control or whatever? Um, but I feel like in general, what's usually most, I don't have good retorts. I, I don't know what, you know, you say um, other than explaining, you know, know your perspective and why it's important to you um but 
I did feel like I had a good retort in that situation. <laughs> I was like, well, I wouldn't call it babysitting because she just set me up so well. I mean, she was like, <laughs> yeah, it was like Spike and Volley. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, I do feel like, you know, rather than trying to shame that person or, you know, embarrass them publicly to kind of pull them aside afterwards, you know, if it is like a group conversation and to say, you know, when you said that thing before, I just wanted to bring it up again because, you know, some folks might not feel that way. And so I just wanted you to know that I feel differently, but it, you know, I understand how you feel. Um, you know, and I know things were different, you know, perhaps if I was having this conversation with my aunt in a, in a separate moment, I might've said, you know, I know that, you know, you had a, a different expectation for your husband growing up when you did. And, you know, my parents are the same, you know, my mom was much more of a traditional homemaker, even though she eventually got her master's and went back to work full time. She still did, I would say 90% of the house care, 90% of the child care. Um, not that my dad wasn't wonderful. I just don't think anyone expected him to do anything more than, you know, he did, um, which was come home every night and, you know, eat dinner with us. Um, I love him. He's wonderful, but you know, times have changed and, and, and to an extent, you know, the, the level at which I'm working at and, you know, running a company, um, leading a team, you know, and then also kind of managing a family. It's, it's too much. It's too much for any individual to take on. And the fact that we so often expect women to just take all that on is, is crushing to me. It's devastating. The fact that, you know, so many women, um, I think are expected to be so perfect. And I've certainly read, you know, lots of lean in and, and it's brethren types of books. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think Sheryl Sandberg saying, make your partner a real partner is a great, is a great way to put it. Um, I wish that, you know, more women would not let their husband off the hook and say, oh, you know, he's doing the best he can and kind of, it's the subtle things like rolling your eyes, like, oh, he got the kids dressed this morning. Huh, eye roll. (laughs) It's like, how do you make, how do you think that makes him feel? Like he feels like he should not ever try to get them dressed again. Like you got to let him do things the way he wants to do them and support him in that. And even if it's not the ways that you would do them, like maybe the kitchen is not spotless the way you would make it spotless, but you know what? Do you want him to clean the kitchen or not? So (laughs) change your standards and, you know, we all win. Um, So I think just really, yeah, trying to kind of meet in the middle with a lot of those things. Um, I give him a lot of credit, but I also give that, that shout out to those, those people who wrote equally shared parenting, (laughs) the best book title. Um, And we will definitely have a link to that in the show notes for certain. It's so good. And Sarah, I wanted to ask one more question because I feel like you've mentioned it and I think it, it's really salient to this audience in particular. You mentioned you were really good about being present at work and then present at home and really being able Mm -hmm. to jump between those and jump between those compartments, really. What do you think has most helped you achieve that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, when I was working pre-kids, I felt like work was all-consuming. It was, you know, what I kind of lived, breathed, ate, slept. Like, I was just constantly thinking about work. And even socializing was not even that easy for me because I just wanted to talk about work and that's not always that fun. Um, I think just being kind of an ambitious overachiever type 
Um, I always wanted to be kind of kicking ass at work. And, you know, that felt like the, the path to success. Um, in terms of things like promotions and raises and, you know, a, a better title on my business card. Um, I think that, I mean, the moment you have a child, everything kind of shifts. And I, I, I remember people saying that to me before I had kids and I was like, whatever, what are you talking about? How is that possible? But like, no, actually it kind of does. <laughs> um, it does kind of change. And, and what changes is that it's suddenly not about you. Um, you know, now your time to, to truly be selfish is kind of over. You now have this tiny being that you're, that you're responsible for. Um, but you also then have a responsibility to take care of yourself um, so that you may take care of that child. Um, and I feel like having that realization just really um, shifted things. I know when... George and I got married, we wrote our own vows, and one of the vows was essentially that. We said, I promise to always take care of myself so that I may always take care of you. Um, I promise to always, you know, respect myself so that I may always respect you. I promise to always love myself so that I may always love you. So just that, I don't know where, how we know this. I don't know where this came from, but I think just that sort of deep self-awareness that, like, you are not equipped to care for others until you care for yourself and, you know, put your, put your life jacket on first or your, you know, your gas yes. mask, your air mask on first. Um, it's like, it's cliche, but at the same time, nobody, I feel like a lot of people don't really do it. And so they exhaust themselves at work and then they exhaust themselves at home and they're, you know, and, 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 they, I, and then they call me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I and I I want to I want to just be conscious of the fact that I'm speaking from a place of privilege, right? Like I have the fortune to hire a team. I have the fortune to work one job and not two or three jobs. Like there's so many ways in which I am privileged enough to say these words and say oh, I'm able to take care of myself. So I just want to kind of give that shout out. Um, I know that there are so many people who don't have the ability um, because they're caring for an elder, because they're you know working a late shift um, to their, their, you know, self-preservation is kind of last on their list. Um, first comes like putting dinner on the table. And so I guess I just want to like be aware of that. And, you know, it's, I don't want to be unaware of, of the privileges I have just to, you know, be in my position, but definitely it's, you know, it's easy to kind of throw everything into everything. Um, and so like, I have a little motto on, um, where is it? It's up on one of our walls in one of our bays. So like our project spaces, it's like tacked to a wall that says perfect is the enemy of good. Um, Love it. There's yeah. a lot of people in this tribe that I think need to hear <laughs> that. So thank you. Yeah, right. I mean, and it is, it's true. If you try for perfect, dude, you're never going to do anything because who's perfect? Um, you know, my sister's I always talk about them. They were very close. They live in Chicago. Um, but they always kind of like to tease me that I'm so perfect or that I sort of have everything I want. And I kind of, I'm like, well, you know, because I'm not perfect, I think it's perfect. Like I love everything because I've been able to let things go. Um, you know, sometimes our house is not clean. Sometimes we are out of toilet paper. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, you know, sometimes, like, I'm not always present for my team because I have to travel or be on calls all day. And, you know, there's there's always ways that you could be doing better. Um, but I think just, yeah, remembering that, like, let's go for good. Yes. <laughs> let's, let's make it good. 
um, good is great and, you know, good enough is great. Well said. And I, I want to ask you just a few more questions before we, before we part ways today. Mm-hmm. And these are questions I love to ask every guest because I think the more different perspectives we hear, it gives us something new to consider. And so, mm-hmm. Sarah, how would you define being a modern woman? Oh, this is a tricky one. Um, I feel like modern women are, <laughs> I mean, some of the things I already said, but I'll, okay, I'll rephrase that. Um, yeah, this is a tricky one. I would say. It is. It's right there with success in terms of toughest <laughs> questions I ask. Right? Modern <laughs> woman? What, is it? what kind of expectation? What are you placing on women? What is mo- modern this year? Modern this century? Um, of course, I'm overthinking it. But I guess I feel like a modern woman is sort of living with both feminist and anti-feminist tendencies. So, you know, wanting to um, say, you know, fight the patriarchy and women should have equal pay and all of these, you know, issues that kind of are women's issues and women's health and, you know, reproductive rights, but then also wanting to like, sometimes just like put on a fancy dress and cook dinner. <laughs> like, um, and, you know, it's sort of having to resolve both of those, I would say tendencies within our society and, and being kind of okay shifting between them. Um, sometimes I really do want to be the one that comforts my kids. Um, you know, I, I definitely have this, like, I always wanted to be a parent and I just love being a mother and just everything about it is just, it feels really, um, easy for me. Like I always did childcare and babysitting and camp counselors and, you know, all that stuff. Um, but um, being a modern woman means not be, means doing that stuff because you choose to, not because you have to. Got it. Got it. And I feel like we've talked about this in a few different places already, but if there's anything else that that's important to be said, what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about? Um, one issue that I think is serving to really exacerbate inequality in the home is actually the concept of parental leave. So maternity leave is pretty real. Like most companies have some kind of policy, but very few companies have a really actual legitimate policy around, around paternity leave or men basically being able to take more than a week or two off when a child is born. Um, I feel like parental leave needs to be equal for women and men and not just from a policy perspective, but actually enforced um, because I think it's one of the biggest drivers of inequality in parenting is that the woman is home and the man is not and she feels like an expert and he feels like a do this. So that's something I think about for my company um, and we make sure to have, you know, sort of equal leave um, for both for, you know, either parent or any, any gender of person. Um, But I I think more women and more companies should demand that um, and advocate for it because I think it makes a big difference. So that's one of my soapboxes. (laughs) Yes. And have you read the book Overwhelmed by Bridget Schulte? Uh, I think so. Maybe not. I think I've read something similar, but if, overwhelmed. Okay. If not, it, it, I feel like you'll, you'll kind of dig it. And there is a big section because I mean, she really starts with the question, like, why do I feel like all of my time feels like 
shattered time confetti and why do I feel so overwhelmed all the time? Mm-hmm. Like as a working mom, just as a woman in the United States, like what is leading? What are all the things that are contributing to this? And sure. there's a big piece of it, you know, in terms of what other countries are doing, what studies are saying, and what the impact of parental leave, and just even how parenting is different, and how that could look. Um, Completely. That's awesome. Yeah, I would love to read that. It's, Thank a, you. it's a tome and a half, but <laughs> it's a big, it's a big dense book, but yeah, but it's yeah. a good one. And I always like to ask the opposite. What would you like to see modern women give less of a shit about? Um, a couple things come to mind for me. One is just first world problems. <laughs> so like, <laughs> yes, I know your Uber is late. I know it's annoying, but like some people can't afford an Uber, you know? So just like kind of recognizing that, um, a lot of our problems are really insignificant. Um, and there are so many people, not just around the world, um, in what we might call a developing country. Um, but literally right here in the U S there's so much poverty, there's so much inequality and, you know, it's going to be okay. Like, I know they messed up your order at Wendy's or whatever. You know? <laughs> like, it's annoying, but, like, give the person a break. They're probably having a bad day and just sort of, like, chilling out on some of the things that, that we get bothered about. The other thing that comes up for me is sort of this idea of competitive parenting. Um, so there's a lot of the sense of an arms race when it comes to <laughs> my child is, you know, doing gymnastics and is learning Mandarin. And it's like, okay, you know, that's great. My kid does nothing after school because that's what children need to do. They need to do nothing. They need to be bored and figure out what it is (laughs) that they like in the world. They need to find their own fun. Um, And, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't indulge your child's interests, like, of course, but, um, you know, parenting has sort of become like a status symbol and a a competitive sport. And um, I would love it if everybody just you know, stopped talking about their children's achievements from a resume or, you know, college, um, you know, attraction perspective. Um, I'm really just thinking about, you know, the ways that their child is unique, um, the gifts that they bring to the world and kind of just celebrating all the, all the strengths of children, not, not feeling competitive with your friends, not feeling competitive among your children if you have siblings, um, but just sort of letting kids be kids. (laughs) That sounds great. And I feel like I'm 41, you're 38. I imagine when you were a kid, you had some boredom, like especially on summer vacations, correct? Oh my God. All I had was boredom. We did nothing. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I know that like the past is past. Another soapbox I have is around kids and technology, but that's a whole nother thing. I'm not sure I should get into it because I... <laughs> Will I be able pretty, to stop you? <laughs> people get pretty pissed, but like our kids are completely screen free. They have no access to phones or tablets. They do watch television um, like once or twice a week, but yeah, I'm really like not into that. But I also think that that's another like to each his own, and we all have our solutions to problems, and like I totally understand it. Um, but yeah, like you know, doing nothing, being bored. Um, making up your own games, using toys that are not toys, but things around the house. I mean, it sounds really idyllic and like 80s, you know, oh, the 80s was so easy and we all just kind of lazed around on our bikes. And But, but actually, like, just because technology has changed and the world has changed from like how hard it is to get into college and stuff like that, 
that doesn't mean that we should sacrifice our kids are kids for so short a time um and it's such a formative time so this is again like kind of a (laughs) kind of a rant but just allowing children to to just be and not think about who are they going to become but just who are they now because you know who are you now like you don't it's not it's not a preparation stage it is their life (laughs) i dig it on a personal level and I love I, I what I hear is you applying innovation even to child rearing, right? Like that you're you're thinking about these things, you're studying them, you're looking at well if I if I move x what happens to y. Sure. So, thank you for sharing this. And of course. And I know we have sort of gone all over the grid cuz that's how these interviews go in my world. Um, and I guess, what do you most want La Vital Core Salon listeners to come away from this conversation with? Yeah, I guess something for me that kind of helps me as I navigate career and navigate the world is when I think I'm doing my best work, it's, it's really not about me. And so, you know, similarly, I would say, when you are doing your best work, it's not about you. It's about the people around you, and it's about how you enable them to succeed. Um, I know that most women probably don't need a course in humility. Many times we don't give ourselves enough credit, so I wouldn't say to go so far as to say, well, it's, it's really not about me at all. But more that like, if you're doing great work, it won't be you won't be always in the spotlight. And I think that's okay. Um, That at least helps me a lot to be less anxious and to be nervous about things. It's like, it's really about um, the work. It's about the impact and the people you're serving and what they're doing um, and how they've changed and and grown and improved. So um, whether that's, you know, with regard to leadership or parenting or anything else, um, take the pressure off. It's not about you. Um, it may be said a different way. The audience wants you to succeed. <laughs> so when yes. you're public speaking or things like that, it's like they, they're, they're with you. They're on your team. They want to see you succeed. Don't apologize. But remember, like, it's not, it's not just about you. It's about, you know, much, much larger things. And if you're doing good work, it should be about larger things. It shouldn't be about you. That is so well put. And I, I, I think you did intuit correctly. I, I think it made me think of two things on a personal level. One is I would much, I would be much happier being Yoda, like behind the scenes, mm-hmm. right? Like I would much prefer to be a sage than on stage. Sure. However, I get that how I market my business and how I contribute to the world sometimes requires me to be on a stage, yes. be yes. having these public conversations. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the other thing, and it, it really made me think of, because the success question is hard. I mean, I feel like I wrestle with it. I mean, I ask this question of women all the time, but I think something just connected when you were talking. I feel like I am doing my best work, and especially when I'm in a session one-on-one with someone, Mm. when I forget, not forget the boundaries and be sort of inappropriate, but when I am so immersed in understanding how they experience their day or how they experience a certain constraint that they've brought to our session that they want to talk about. And I lose all self-consciousness. 
like that feels really good because it's, yeah. it's not about me in those sessions. And I, I think, I don't know what the larger lesson is, but I think it is important to recognize when, when we're doing our best work, we're there, but we're not thinking about being there. We're not overthinking. Did I do or say the right thing? We're just like, for me, I'm just making a human connection and trying to solve a problem with this person. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I love how you said, you know, I sort of forget myself, um, or lose a sense of self-consciousness. I think that self-consciousness is, many times kind of our, our, our biggest enemy. I think that's different than self-awareness. We want to know how we show up, but yeah, in, in my best research sessions, in my best, you know, team meetings, um, whenever I'm feeling like things are really clicking, it's usually because, you know, the team is working well together or this person and I are connecting on a human level. Um, not that I'm sort of the star of the show and, you know, it's a constant thing to, to balance because our team actually is always telling me, you know, we need to be a little bit louder and prouder about what we do. Like we should put ourselves out there a little bit more, maybe a little bit more. (laughs) Um, And so that's something that we're working on too, is just, you know, how do we sort of communicate about our work without seeming like we are bragging or whatever, you know, like, yeah, I think we do good work, but like, so do other people. Um, so for example, we have a whole website, a Pinterest page actually of, of our competitors because people are like, where can I work if I can't work for you? And we're like these hundred other companies. So we're always trying to kind of like lift the field and, you know, show that this is, this is, this is a movement. It's not just, you know, one company, um, as like a, a, as a star or a leader. Um, so I think that, I think that philosophy applies to a lot of things. Well, Sarah, I absolutely 100% see you as a star and see you as a leader. And I am so appreciative that when I reached out a total stranger, well, I guess I had met George at South by Southwest. So maybe not a complete stranger. He could vouch that I wasn't insane yeah, um, and had no <laughs> weird personal tics or anything like that. <laughs> but I am so grateful that you came and you sat down here in the Vital Core Salon with me and shared your wisdom and what you do. And and I'm allowing me to, to throw a spotlight on what you're doing so other women can learn about it and be excited about it too. Thank you. Of course. Well, thank you. It really was a nice opportunity. I appreciate, um, like I said, I appreciate your questions. Um, and I appreciate your follow-up questions. I think we are kindred spirits when it comes to (laughs) open-ended interviews and follow-up questions. It's really important. (laughs) Well, thank you again for making this happen. I, I am so intellectually stimulated and I think have a little bit of an intellectual crush on you. I have to say. Well, don't worry. We can talk anytime. (laughs) Awesome. Well, keep doing the amazing work that you're doing in the world because it is it is really something and really valuable. And it looks like from the outside looking in really impactful. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sarah. It's Kara again. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of this episode. I hope that you have a reflection or some inspiration or something that you can apply in your own life 
from all of the wisdom and conversation that Sarah brought to this episode. And I also want to remind you that creating a podcast like Le Vital Core Salon takes a lot of resources, including both time and money. And I want to produce this and still have it be free for you. But I need your help. And one of the easiest things that you can do to support this podcast is to share it with another woman you know. So if something in this episode made you think of someone in your life, please just shoot them the link to the episode at levitalcoresalon.com or wherever you're listening to it. There's usually a way to just forward that episode. So please consider that because it really helps this podcast grow. As always, big merci beaucoup to producer Craig Snyder, to my gal Friday who makes all of the technological pieces work, Darlene Victoria, and extra special thanks to Rishi Deer who wrote and shared the theme song that you hear and the, the music in the beds underneath the conversations. And if you haven't heard about it yet, Rishi and his side project with Alex of the Black Angels and Tom of the Horrors has a new album out. So the, the band is mean. The album just came out a couple of weeks ago and highly suggest you give it a listen if you want to get some psych rock goodness into your skull. Otherwise, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let the bullshit or burnout stop you. See you next time.